0: Welcome to New Books and Religion. I'm your co-host, Hilary Kale. Sister Thorne and Catholic Mysticism in Modern America is a detailed journey into the life of Margaret Riley, an Irish Catholic from New York who entered the convent of the Good Shepherd in 1921, taking the name of Sister Crown of Thorns, or just Sister Thorne. During the 1920s and 1930s, Sister Thorne became known as a stigmatic who bled the wounds of Christ. Through her story, Professor Paula Kane immerses readers in a world in transition, where interwar Catholics retained deep mystical devotionalism, yet also began to claim a confident new role as assimilated Americans. She does so through a very provocative question, how did a stigmatic help ordinary Catholics understand themselves as modern Americans? Paula Kane is Associate Professor and the John and Lucene O'Brien Marcus Chair of Contemporary Catholic Studies at the University of Pittsburgh. Thank you for being with us, Professor Kane.
1: You're welcome. It's (laughs) nice to be here. So this book was a long time in the making. How did you come to this project to begin with? It was really totally by accident. I was finishing uh, footnotes for an earlier project uh, at a different university archives, and I was checking through my own notes, and the archivist came out with great excitement and said, we're finishing an online search engine. Can you help me see if it works? I said, sure. Sure. So he said, type in a word that won't bring up too many entries. So don't use Christianity. So I typed in on a whim, stigmata. And up came this odd letter uh, in the archives, a typed script letter of some six pages uh, that was written by a priest in 1922 who turned out to be the beginning of my project. He wrote about going to see a mystic in Peekskill, New York, and I was flummoxed. I'd never heard of a stigmatic being in the United States in the 1920s. So as I began to research more and more, everybody said, you'll never find anything more about this this is the dead end to the project. And the more I dug, the more I actually did find. So that particular archival venture really proved to be fruitful in terms of setting me off on a, I had no intentions of writing about stigmatics or mystics or anything like that. And it just intrigued me enough to, to pull me in. That's fantastic.
0: So anytime my students then tell me that they just spend a lot of time Google searching random words, I can actually tell them that it can lead <laughs> to a fantastic book on American, uh, American religion. That's right. So so our listeners, like most North Americans, although I'm sure now they're going to start Googling Sister Thorne, but they probably never heard of her before. So can you give us a brief sense of who she was and what she did?
1: Okay, Um, this was enabled to me by uh, the nuns who actually tried to write down her her life story in preparation for her potentially becoming a a saint. And so I'm very grateful to those early chroniclers. They literally sat by her bedside and asked her questions about her own background. So I have a fair amount of details about her childhood. So she was born um, in the year 1884 in Manhattan. And I was interested when I was watching Ken Burns' documentary series, uh, on American TV last year on the Roosevelts that Franklin Roosevelt was born that very same year. And it struck me that, wow, two, two people, uh, born in 1884 each reacted to a handicap quite differently. So FDR was handicapped by polio and Margaret Riley will later on be handicapped by a, a kind of hysterical uh, paralysis. But she was a, a very pious, Catholic girl in an Irish-American family. Um, Many relatives were still in Ireland. Uh, Several were nuns. Her own mother had thought of becoming a presentation nun, a common order of Irish nuns. And in New York, she, she was born basically what's midtown today, but the family moved up to the nineties on the East side uh, when her father uh, got jobs as a construction contractor up there and could afford to buy a house away from tenements and so forth. So they were at the very Northern edge of settlement in New York city at that time. And the wealthy, the very few wealthy mansions of the Vanderbilts and so forth were going up around there. Uh, And she had the luxury, I guess, of her family supporting all her pious practices. They Went to at least two parishes. She went to confession in a third. So she seemed to do a lot of traipsing around on foot or by trolley car and so forth, later by subway, uh, on her own, going to devotional practices at various churches. So the first record we have of Margaret is essentially an extremely pious child who even became more so as she got older. She was told by her parochial school nuns to uh, do things to encourage suffering, such as putting ashes in her socks and her shoes to be painful and annoying when she walked. Uh, She was told by her spiritual confessor to walk in the rain with no umbrella, uh, to do all kinds of personal penances like that, which she really seemed to take to heart. And even her siblings thought she was overdoing it a bit. So, for example, when her mother said, you know, the family should get new clothes for Christmas, what would she like? Um, Her siblings said, oh, Margaret will prevent us from getting new clothes because she's just too holy and doesn't think we need them. So, you know, the fact that even her family thought she'd a bit a bit overboard uh, suggests a kind of intensity that that's sort of unusual. Uh, And it seems the nuns at her school encouraged a lot of this, you know, knowledge passed on through holy cards and lives of the saints uh, just seemed to increase her desire to be among their number to be an especially extraordinarily pious girl.
0: So to give us uh, a bit of background to set the stage, what are some of the devotional and mystical models then? You, You touched on a few in passing, but what are some of the devotional and mystical models that predate Sister Thorne that she would have known about and that she was drawing on?
1: Well, I think those suffering saints, uh, both the Middle Ages and the early modern period, were very important. So Catherine of Siena, with her mystical marriage to Christ, a model for all nuns, and her uh, you know mystical stigmata and wedding ring and so forth, very powerful. Um, she read uh, about a 19th century mystic named Anne Catherine Emmerich, who was in what's now Germany and a victim of sort of the Napoleonic uh, troops going through Germany, uh, closing down her convent. And she was a, a stigmatist who apparently affected Margaret's model for saintliness quite strongly. Um, Anne Emmerich also time-traveled, bilocated, had extraordinary visions of events uh, not even talked about in the Gospels that came to be accepted as kind of uh, uh, sort of cinem- cinematic versions of what may have happened. And her own uh, biographer uh, was a, a poet, a romantic poet named Clemens Brentano, uh, who wrote all this stuff down sitting at Anne Catherine's bedside at her convent in Dulmen. And I believe that one of Margaret's own uh, confessors later in the convent uh, was very struck by this saint and took care to pass on her life story to her. And indeed, he later on interpolated True events from Anne Catherine's life into Margaret's uh, biography. We'd have no uh, knowledge they actually happened, such as demons and cats jumping on her bed and so forth, but they reflect a kind of template of a stigmatic piety of at least the early to mid 19th century that affected Margaret along with those earlier suffering saints like Catherine of Siena, uh, Margaret Mary um, Alacoque um, and others who really combine visionary experience with extraordinary physical um, deprivation or suffering.
0: So stigmatics though are, are something rather particular And you spend a while in the book sort of helping us understand this this idea of the stigmatic, you know, up through uh, Francis of Assisi onwards. What is a stigmatic?
1: Well, a stigmatic is a a person who is believed to bear on their own body the marks of the crucifixion of Christ. And this might be the classic uh, wounds in the two hands, two feet and the side, and it might include other things that are told of in the passion narrative, such as the scourging of the forehead with a crown of thorns, um, hence sister thorns name or this, the deep wounds in the thigh or marks on the, the back from being whipped en route to crucifixion. Um, and, and if Francis of Assisi was the first of these back in the year 1224, um, Others claim that in the centuries since, and the list isn't long in Christianity, maybe 400 people, and many of them have since been you know, discarded as probably fake or fraudulent or not enough evidence. Um, but it was unusual to see someone in the 20th century in New York City uh, expressing this kind of, of belief. Uh, so stigmatics are those who literally embody the crucifixion. And what's the transition then? So we
0: go from Margaret. She's a very pious, maybe even a little overly pious child. At what point does she actually develop the stigmata? When does she start reading her physical suffering in this kind of way?
1: It's not clear that she herself read it in that way. Others certainly will apply that reading. But I found it interesting that instead of uh, an event like Francis of Assisi, where he is described as meditating, on a crucifix and has a vision including a winged angel and so forth and then the wounds start to appear that Margaret's was was more like a series of stutter steps getting to that point so when she's a few years before uh, i guess she's still in her let's see early 30s she claims to have a mark uh, on her heart or above her heart while she's cooking dinner with her mom. that's kind of an interesting thing. They're making a fish supper for Lent, I think. And she has this pain, and her mother reports putting her to bed and finding this bleeding, uh, perfectly identified, three-dimensional crucifix over her heart. And she'd had a few signals before that that it happened. So that's kind of a strange event. We don't have a lot of other stories like that. Um, and when she later ends up in a convent in Peekskill, New York, apparently this bleeding manifests itself by that same mark from her heart flying to the convent wall and and being lodged there, and then bleeding from the classic hands and feet and side and forehead, uh, which. It is, is a matter of controversy as well. But she seems to have an extraordinary amount of wounds, although for a very short time. And what about the
0: the devotion of the sacred heart? I mean, you mentioned this in the book, and for anyone who's um, you know, aware of American Catholicism in this period and in the 19th century, they know how important that devotion was. How does the sacred heart play into Margaret's story?
1: It's interesting that... Uh, Catholics were being encouraged to to follow this devotion more fervently, and it was really important to the Irish, Irish Irish-Americans, to the Jesuits, who will play a role in her story, uh, to the Passionists, whose sign symbol is the Sacred Heart, and to certain saints, such as Margaret Mary Alacoque. So, this is a very, you know, long-winded path to get to Margaret. But in France in the 17th century, the the visions of the Sacred Heart to this particular woman, uh, a nun, uh, Margaret Marie, um led her to even produce the exact image of what was to be shown for the devotion. And it was a kind of devotion that took a while to get going as well. It didn't immediately take off. The church did not immediately embrace it. And it was largely through the efforts I think of, of her Jesuit uh, supporters that made this a more uh, lively and acceptable uh, devotion. So it was meant to intensify one's uh, yearnings to be like Christ in enduring even the suffering of Christ during the crucifixion so it's a kind of passion spirituality if that's a familiar term to listeners um that everything is 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 subsumed into the passion of christ and it's the model of christians to endure even the most heinous suffering to be like that and to be totally drawn into the sacred heart uh, of jesus so a lot of these nuns and their their male counterparts were always praying for more and more and more suffering
0: Right. And as you said,
1: I mean, in the Irish
0: Catholicism, um, and especially this very pious devotional Irish Catholicism surrounding Margaret Riley, she certainly would have run into this devotion. Absolutely.
1: Absolutely. And we know from the stories of the famine years that uh, the Irish adopted a kind of Jansenist strain of, of Catholicism that was quite punitive and, and fond of ascetic practices of various sorts. So as a way of unifying a kind of Irish uh, nationalist Catholicism, uh, Archbishop Colin of Dublin and others uh, brought these devotions to a new uh, height, I guess, in Irish the Irish church. And many of the American priests had gone through Irish seminary or had training among other Irish Catholics, and we're very familiar with the Sacred Heart devotion and very fond of it.
0: Right. And, and there's nuns at, at the parochial school who are telli- <laughs> telling Margaret to put ashes in her shoes and all these kinds of things. <laughs> That's so, right. Uh, so, you know, right from the start, I mean, you know, this is a book about Catholic mysticism, but it's a book about modern America. And you know, right from the start that it's really about Catholic assimilation into American life, but it's through a lens that differs from the more usual stories probably a lot of our readers are familiar with about ethnicity, politics, institution building. Instead, you're offering an account of how mystical forms of religion are playing into this story about modernity and assimilation. What are some of the ways that we see this happening through the lens of Sister Thorne's life?
1: It's such a peculiar thing about American Catholicism because we all want to imagine that immigrants who come to the United States might have a hard time at the start, but eventually want to be part of the the larger polis, to be assimilated Americans. And Catholicism has consistently frustrated that narrative, I think, by being or offering a counterculture in various ways to the narrative of clear-cut, supportive success, financial prosperity, getting ahead, fitting in. So it is weird that in the most modern city in the Western world, uh, New York, we produce a young woman like this whose ties seem more old worldly, very much connected to Irish piety, to old time sorts of punishments and notions of suffering and, you know, hell and so forth, a kind of fearful outlook on the world that, you know, while her father is making it as a contractor and doing fairly well and allowing the family to move and so forth and so on, they have a, a large enough family that it's, it's worked to sustain them. They fast tremendously. And she's obviously drawn towards this more, um, I don't know, punishing outlook on, on life So on the one hand, you know, if you've read works by James Fisher and others, uh, if we look at people like Dorothy Day, they are a counterculture to an American success story. Dorothy Day, active in the 20s and 30s, will support, you know, a very punishing view of, of Christ's work, but the strong identification with the poor and the marginal that leads her to a kind of aesthetic practice involved in a pacifist movement, the founding of a Catholic worker. For Margaret and I think many more women of her generation, their counterculture outreach was more in terms of the traditional path, becoming a nun but I will be the most suffering nun you ever saw and I, my practices will lead to presumably reform of my community um, so in a sense she she repeats messages given to Catherine of Siena and other famous convent reformers uh, in hopes of presumably bringing her own community, the religious of the good shepherd uh, to a different understanding of themselves but it's not an easy one for American up mobility narrative is it because she's really not saying yes pursue the good things of life enjoy the success your family has this is much more about recalling suffering of the ancients and how uh, christ is still suffering for us Um, and i guess the final thought i would offer there is that this is a generation that's just seen the end of world war one and the enormous suffering of that war and the horrible introduction of chemical warfare trench warfare the massacres of thousands of bodies lying on the field and the necessity of these mass graves was really an awful awful thing you know 10% of the the, uh, the male population was killed in that war and even though Americans en- entered it late They were very much, I think, struck by this cult of suffering and brought home much of this pious literature, holy cards, notice of shrines and so forth that affected Margaret's generation a lot.
0: Yeah. People like, for example, Teresa, the little flower from France, you always hear about that cult crossing the Atlantic as well in this period in the 1910s, 1920s.
1: That's true. Um, These soldiers brought that back with them. Right. Right.
0: Well, that was a great segue because, in fact, my next question I'd wanted to ask you about the First World War. Um, and also, though, about a term that really struck me that, that you used from Stephen Schlosser's work on uh, jazz age Catholicism. But mm-hmm. you mentioned that um, interwar Catholicism could be viewed as off modern. Mm-hmm. So, in, in what sense?
1: Um, that's Steve's term, and I borrowed it from him, and other authors have used similar terms, but Catholics weren't wholeheartedly embracing what was modern, and if we recall that the Pope himself had condemned modernism as a heresy in 1907, a mere seven years before World War I started, basically anything you and I might consider normal to our status quo now, democracy, voting rights, uh, religious liberty, freedom of conscience, toleration of other faiths. All those things have been condemned as dangerous isms by the papacy, reiterating a lot of the, the old things that were condemned in the syllabus of errors in 1864. So communism, socialism, along with the extremes of capitalism, were all considered um, not helpful for Catholics and not encouraged. So, Margaret's generation is this this is an odd strategy they're off modern to the degree that they are witnessing unprecedented success and the beginnings of mobility by the 1920s Catholics are by now well integrated into the public school systems the police uh, forces the firefighters and public servants of a lot of American cities and since the Irish largely remained urbanites, they weren't the rural Catholics, uh, that they were in control of a lot of these things. They were handy at developing political machines. They were guilty of a fair amount of corruption. Um, But they were off-modern to the degree that there was this notion that um, supernature, the idea of a God controlling destiny, the whole universe was still very important. And the notion that the Catholic Church was the means to, to get salvation beyond that Even in a largely Protestant America, their message was, you know, it wasn't going to fit or mesh directly with the American landscape. Um, you know, later they would perhaps transform that landscape as well as be transformed. But I think Margaret's generation was kind of squarely caught in the middle. They were children of immigrants, but not yet fully assimilated. So we can feel some sympathy for their strategies. You know, what to do, embrace everything that was good about modern New York, uh, feel a part of the so-called jazz age, or... Recede into a convent environment, which is what she did in the end, along with many thousands of her generation. And so, you just mentioned, uh, you know, the the super nature, and you know that brings me
0: to a major idea that that runs throughout a number of the chapters. But um, you know, the role of science paradoxically, uh, science refuses the reality of Catholic miracles, and it's also used though to bolster them in other ways. What's the negotiation with science is a big term, but what's the negotiation with science in this period for Catholics and maybe more particularly in, in the um, in the case of Sister Thorne supporters and detractors?
1: This was the hardest part for me to research and to study. Um, so I, I began to think about how the Catholic Church began to upgrade its own understanding a mystical phenomena. So for things you could see, like speaking in tongues or presumably bilocating or levitating or stigmata, where there's a physical mark that you can identify, how did the Catholic Church discern false from true uh, in these sorts of matters? And this process really began in the 18th century with an earlier pope, uh, Benedict the 14th. Wrote about, you know, how do Catholics investigate apparitions? You know, what are the questions to be asked? So, on the one hand, the Catholic Church has a very legalistic approach to these things. You conduct interviews like a sociologist would today or an ethnographer. You gather all the opinions of everybody that knew this person and then you form judgments. And the tricky part is how those judgments are formed. So, For me, the fascinating thing was how trying to figure out how much of the language used in the United States and the procedures were being derived from uh, parallel cases in Europe. And I looked very much to to France. That's where the Good Shepherd order is from and where much of the science on stigmata was being done at the time. And we find in France in the late 19th century in the Third Republic, a very anti-clerical state in France. And they're very hostile to the Catholic Church for all that it stood for. But the investigators who were trying to unmask these stigmatic women or mystics as frauds, you know, have their own axis to grind. So they are scientists of a very, you know, crude, positivistic type. And they came down to the level of you know, taking women's arms and encasing them in gloves and rubber in glass tubes, trying to see if they would still bleed on appointed days and so forth. And on the one hand, this is scientific method, observation, empirical data. On the other hand, they didn't really reach firm conclusions. So on the one hand, the Catholic Church took glee in saying, see, this stigmatic still bled on every Friday, no matter what you did. And the scientists said, yes, but it doesn't really prove anything definitively. Uh, So the standoff that was reached in France, I think reached a kind of new level of of, uh, conflict once we find these early neurologists who conducted this kind of research becoming more of what we would recognize as a modern psychoanalyst. So the emergence of Freud, who was in fact a student, of the famous French neurologist Charcot, uh, the emergence of Freud and his theories of an unconscious and the question of what is it something like a, someone like a stigmatic is desiring, what is being shown by this strange physical manifestation took the the uh, investigations in a different kind of direction, I think. And what I learned in brief about the United States was that nobody was really up to snuff in the Catholic Church with this, this literature, the this psychoanalytic literature. They had condemned Freud for a variety of reasons. Mostly he was an atheist Jew. Um, there was a certain whiff of anti-Semitism in their dislike of Freud. But there was also a sense that um, a person who doesn't believe in God in the first place can't ever come to believe in these sorts of manifestations. So what good is he? On the other hand, uh, the scientific side said the Catholic Church uh, will never abandon its view that God is the cause of all these things, and even when we can show that this bleeding is not coming from uh, supernatural sources, um, you know, they're not going to change their opinion. So we have two fairly conflicting camps, I would say, as to the science. And in a sense, what what I found is that the Americans were... Following a kind of European model to a certain degree, which is already a little bit outmoded, um, the notions of hysteria particularly that were used to condemn women, especially uh, for showing all these strange religious um, epileptic-like fits and so forth, uh, that that term hysteria was used as such a blanket term that almost anybody could fall into it. You and I on a bad teaching day could be described as hysterics, right? Uh, so, um, you know, some were willing to say, well, Margaret was clearly a hysteric, and that's what caused this problem. But, you know, really being hysterical can't be proved to make your skin open up and bleed especially you know in a regular kind of calendar schedule so there must be more to it and i think the americans kind of fell behind both the science and were also led perhaps in different directions by the very americanness of the church and that's when we start to see the the american scene really maybe taking over a bit and saying well we're not like ancient europe or medieval europe or early modern europe
0: well, I, I, of course, never get hysterical because I never have bad teaching days. Ah, good right? for you. Yes. Well, considering I'm going up for tenure next year, I have to say these sorts of things. Right? <laughs> um, but um, so so one of the chapters that is, it's the longest chapter, also in a lot of ways, the most innovative chapter is chapter four. And that's really what you're referring to right now. Um, you know, the way that psychoanalytics uh, plays out. Um, for people in that time period. But in that chapter four, you also talk about how psychoanalytic um, thought is then being used by feminists as they are looking at at these kinds of phenomena that, as we've been alluding to throughout, are a very gendered phenomenon. Um, Can you speak a bit more uh,
1: about that? Okay. Yeah, this was hard for me to research as well, because I, I know that for medieval mystics, and even some of the early modern um, people, like Amy Hollywood and others, have done work on uh, how the mystic has essentially been that figure, and that mysticism contains many of these hysterical behaviors. On the bright side, the Catholic Church has no has no beef with someone being both a hysteric and a mystic. These things are fully possible uh, together, but. They were often used in a dismissive way, I think, in, in Margaret Riley's uh, lifetime. But I, I found that um, the, the psychoanalysts were trying to explain behaviors that we might describe as masochism. So in, in Catholic tradition, Margaret Riley was being called to a kind of vocation that was termed a victim soul, a person who embraced suffering willingly and voluntarily chose to suffer more and more vicariously for others. So it was not uncommon for nuns of that era to pray, to take on the suffering of priests. Um, Who knows why they didn't pray to take on the suffering of fellow nuns, but it seems the priests always needed their prayers more. And they would take on the sufferings of sick people and ill people and cancerous people and soldiers at war and so forth. And this victim spirituality does you know, inflect both the generation of Thérèse of Lisieux, who offers her little way of suffering and nuns like Margaret, it gave them a heroic position to be in, but psychoanalysts were a little less um, wowed by that. And their concern was to think about why people would want to inflict pain on themselves. Isn't that a strategy we would call masochistic? And how does one think about, you know, voluntary ways of punishing the body? So Margaret putting ashes in her shoes, wearing a hair shirt as a young woman, um, projecting these uh, assaults on her by demons, or at least reporting them to the convent, uh, eating very, much less than she needed to, and so forth. What did that? What did that mean? So, the ways in which psychoanalysts began to think about this this type of suffering was quite different from the way the Catholic Church was thinking about it. And you know, analysts following following Freud weren't necessarily good on the, the feminist side of things. There is a strong gender. Problem I guess that feminists identified with with Freud through the decades that you know why is it that a theory of, of consciousness uh, by Freud was performed mostly upon women and then generalized uh, to men uh, and you know Freud did negate some of his own theories too, but this masochistic behavior I think was really tough. So moving from hysteria forward, Freud's innovation was to think about um, the roots of neurosis and why people would repeat these sorts of behaviors over and over again. Um, I'm jumping forward through several generations of, of thinkers about this, clinical thinkers, but I was very struck in looking at the Catholic landscape to see that there were very few Catholic Freudians. This isn't surprising, given the bias against Freud, but for those who actually did make it and did see the potential for use of Freud, their work is quite interesting. So I tried to read what they said, and I I learned that in Europe there were some You know, first initial readings, gatherings between analysts and theologians and such to talk about mystical phenomena. And even in the 1930s, there was a whole volume and a conference dedicated to stigmata, which was remarkable. So I read a lot of those boring, relatively boring papers in French and uh, discern that wow, they haven't gotten very far here since Charcot, which was true. So moving forward, um, people at Louvain, uh, such as uh, Antoine Vergote and other. Others embraced the neo Freudian outlook of Jacques Lacan and others, and they were able to employ a little richer. Strategy to interpret these kinds of of behaviors. So, uh, Virgoat, for example, talked about um, masochism as a hysterical uh, symptom, a kind of wound of the self that is about feminine desire of some sort. So, what is that desire? You know, it's not simply to punish the self, but of some kind of a wish for a union or a wish for understanding or wish of, um, the classic beatific vision in some ways. So repeating traumatic experiences in the Freudian scheme are a way of hoping to get it right the next time. And usually the repeater never does, but it's a kind of obsessional behavior that we've all experienced to some small degree in our own lives. If I just keep doing it again, this time it'll be right, right. Um, and so I, I really found a lot of that, that work fascinating. Um, when we come to the feminist, that's a whole other uh, kettle of fish, I think. And there's a, a broad range of women inter- interpreting classic psychoanalytic theory um, that gave a, their own critique of Freud and later of Lacan uh, to talk about, you know, what was going on here. Um, so that's that's really a lot, I think, to say for the moment. So maybe I'll pause and let you talk for a bit. <laughs> well, so um maybe we can
0: we can go back to Sister Thorne herself and kind of her environment uh, throughout we hear a lot from different promoters and detractors um, in the book. What are some of the favorite characters that you that you uncovered as you were <laughs> researching the book?
1: <laughs> well, it's fair to say that I am still in love with Herbert Thurston. Uh, The Jesuit priest from Great Britain who was just a remarkably bookish man and spent his whole life pretty much in the British Library researching aspects of Catholic liturgy, hagiography, and mystical phenomena. So he wrote so many interesting essays on stigmatists, and he even wrote one about Margaret Riley. Uh, using a disguised name and relying on details from an informant in New York who was Margaret's uh, doctor. So he's one of my favorites just because he was so curious about all these things and because he kind of hung out with the the bohemian hipsters of his day in London who were in the Society for Psychical Research. So these included, you know, lesbians, uh, errant lords, uh, homosexuals, uh, aristocrats of some type, Uh, William James, whoever was in town that could be interested in psychical research was was part of the group and I just have a great picture of him uh, fitting in with that group and also feeling somewhat markedly different considering the plight of Catholics in Great Britain was always a kind of second class uh, citizen. But he was such a smart man and I was very struck by his common sense approach to studying these problems that he's kind of a, a model for us all not to get overborne with theory but to recall to ourselves the common sense material before us. So he's one favorite and another favorite for very different reasons was um, a a Benedictine from uh, Switzerland who ends up in Missouri named Lucas Etlin. And he becomes a spiritual model and confessor uh, to Margaret Riley invited to the convent by her superior. So he comes from a cloistered monastic world on the plains of Missouri to Peekskill, New York, and he spends uh, about a month for several years in a row uh, in the convent, offering retreats for the sisters, but mostly investigating Margaret Riley and taking down her life's details and trying to put them into a spiritual narrative. Now, he was a self-punisher worthy of Margaret. So, you know, hair shirts, flagellation, excessive devotional practices of all sorts. Rarely slept um, and so forth. And he interested me because of his certainty that he was in the presence of a saint. And that kind of desire interested me too. What is it about these people in the 1920s that were concerned and, and really obsessed with seeing a living saint and ascertaining that there was one in their midst? So it's true that people like Lucas were all over the country. I mean, every convent had chaplains and confessors. But he really took things to another level. He was always providing ascetic literature to Margaret. His style of retreats we would probably find a bit forbidding these days. Uh, he was all about the suffering priest and the sacrifice of Christ and the bloody wounds. Um, and yet he did find did find a message of love in all of that. So I found a lot of his scribblings and uh, meanderings and musings in his correspondence with Margaret and they, they do sound rather incoherent at spots, but it struck me, wow, here, here is a guy who, who rarely sleeps, who's asking too much of himself, who's being asked to do a lot by his own community. He also published a a journal, had to be, you know, get the copy ready for that. Um, and is definitely an old school priest. Um, Nothing about his life prefigures the changes that'll come of Vatican II, and he dies in the late 1920s, so he doesn't live on to that. But um, his own community will go on to be a lot more uh, progressive, I think, and liturgically. But he's one of these kind of—I um, don't know if he's off modern or anti-modern. You know, he really thinks the lives of the saints who suffered were the model he wanted to follow. So I think he was sucked into uh, Margaret's convent life and everything that she did or said was to him a, some kind of a model for a template, a hagiography that he was going to write. So on the one hand, he was quite um, pious. On the other hand, I think a strong ego. He wanted to be the Clemens Brentano of that convent world. And he was going to write, you know, Margaret's life as though she were Anne Catherine Emmerich.
0: Yeah, it's really fascinating. I mean, in our discussions, we've uh, talked about observation, both the observation of detractors, right, the scientists and medical professionals, but also this really close observation of Margaret by people who want so badly for her to be a saint, right, to be a living saint. Um, So we can't talk, I think, about the book without at least mentioning the infamous um, Galen letters. Is it Galen or Galen? Gallon um, Gallon, okay, the yeah. gallon letters, um, so what are they and and why did you choose to include them?
1: This was certainly a strange episode in my research. I was sitting in the convent archives, which was basically a room full of brown boxes and plastic bags and shoe boxes and so forth, and there was nothing collated, so I was just wading through piles of stuff one night after midnight and it wasn't all that lonely to the extent I could hear the nuns coming and going. Most of them were at that point working with AIDS patients and victims in Rockaway Beach in New York. Uh, they, they were constantly coming and leaving the house at all hours. So I was up as they were up. And I remember coming across this very odd letter it uh, was typed, and it was full of all kinds of, of obscenities. And I thought, that's strange. Where did that come from? You know, it wasn't really signed. So the more I dug, I, I found a second one. And apparently, it was part of a series of two dozen of these, at least, that were sent to Margaret's stomach surgeon, a man named Gall- Dr. Gallen. And this seemed quite odd. So apparently, she had always been told she suffered from ulcers and had surgery, and no ulcers were found, but she continued to suffer this chronic stomach pain all her life. So during the course of this diagnosis, she fell in love with Dr. Gallen and even walked around with a ring on her finger saying that he gave it to her. This is before she enters the convent, obviously. And then lo and behold, Dr. Gallen marries his nurse, also acquainted uh, with Margaret, and there appears to be a certain kind of rivalry and jealousy here. So soon afterwards, when the couple was married, they began receiving these anonymous letters. So uh, many suspected that Margaret was, in fact, uh, the author. And they came into an archival setting because the doctor was so unnerved by this with his new bride that they sent them to the archbishop. And the archbishop was obviously surprised, and he uh, sent them – or shared them with a couple of priests and also with the superior at Margaret's convent. So a few of them ended up there. A few of them ended up in England in Father Thurston's collection, and the rest are lost to history, unfortunately. But the letters seem to show a really um, vengeful personality at work here who's determined to to, uh, score points against a lot of people. So, the scenario is not really very clear, but it sounds like Dr. Gallen was a fatal attraction for a lot of women uh, who were in love with him, and it seemed that some of the women were trying to blackmail each other behind the scenes for what they knew about his relationship with these these various women. So I can't definitively prove that Margaret wrote these letters, but it's interesting that everybody assumed that she was the author. Um, and since she had limited uh, education, her schooling pretty much stopped before high school. The letters are poorly written. The grammar is poor, but that it might have been You know, a fake strategy as well. But they're strange and they're vulgar. And I included them not for any shock value, but just to indicate that uh, Americans and historians of religion shouldn't be surprised that people who enter monastic life as adults have had histories before they got there. So on the one hand, Margaret's failed romance might have been a prime uh, impetus for her to finally get into convent life. She had failed once before, and it might give us a side of her personality, which just shows uh, a person who was part of street culture in New York, who had a kind of tough time, uh, even with friends, and that the experiences of the girls who ended up in as wards of the Good Shepherds. Since their care was of delinquent women, was not so far fetched for even someone like Mike Margaret. So again, from the standpoint of the Catholic Church, there is nothing wrong with a person having been a hysteric or a minor blackmailer uh, entering uh, community life. Um, but it did show us that because the letters appeared at a crucial, they surfaced at a crucial time in Margaret's path uh, through postulant status to take her final vows, that it took her a long time. The community fought over this, and they were split over it. And it took her almost five years from entrance to take her final vows, which was pretty long. And since she was already a mature woman in her late 30s, she had to get special permission for that, and now there were these further delays. So I thought the gallon letters, or at least including pieces of them, would help us... If, if nothing else, feel some sympathy for a person who had a tough time before she entered the Good Shepherd order. And to see her is a little more complicated than just the cardboard saint, the girl putting ashes in her shoes. Right.
0: And as you said, also, um, you're pointing us, the reader, towards the, um, you know, the ways that life in New York City, as it happens in the streets and in families like Margaret's, is not separate from the culture of mysticism or even the cloistered convent. Um, So as uh, someone who also works in archives, and I don't know if other readers had had this feeling, but, you know, there's this moment of excitement for me as the reader when I realized that you had found these extra letters in the Thurston archives. You know, I pictured (laughs) how exciting that must have been to kind of (laughs) uncover these things. Um, And I I wanted to uh, talk briefly, at least, about the methodology in this book. You know, one of the really impressive things, to me at least, is the interdisciplinary nature of your research and your approach. Um, What are some of the methodologies that you used and, and why?
1: Well, I tried to think of the material culture of her time, convent life, what objects did Catholics manipulate, hold in their hands, see hear, smell, and that led me to the the long discussion of the Sacred Heart badges she created. Um, Alongside material culture, I'm very much interested in the psychoanalytic theory because that is born at this very time. It wasn't as though I was, from an outside perspective, applying it to an external event, but really... The people who are examining her are aware of that literature and chose to ignore it for interesting reasons. Um, I tried to pay attention to feminist literature on mysticism. Um, That's a lot of work because in the end, she might not be what we would call a genuine mystic, but she genuinely tried hard to present that image to the world. Um, American history tells us a lot about, uh, Catholics in this, in this time and place, a fair amount of anthropology in terms of just the anthropology of convent life. How did nuns and sisters relate to each other? Uh, why was this hierarchy uh, so firmly in place in the 1920s and thirties? How did Margaret's appearance disrupt almost everything that was supposed to keep convents on a normal track um i thought of art history a bit in terms of just uh the image of images and paintings of stigmata i had seen i did quite a lot of looking at paintings during this research and unfortunately cut a whole chapter out on uh, paintings about stigmata but i was just very intrigued by you know how they're shown and how the account of francis becomes a template uh, for almost all subsequent accounts even though they weren't all like that um but trying to show such a moment on canvas is a challenge for an artist. And so I was curious. And it led me to the much more humble holy cards and saints cards and images that were in the Peekskill convent that were available to the nuns every day. So this is a more you know, commonplace, um, perhaps more saccharine type of images that were mass produced in places like Saint-Solpice around um, in Paris or in various parts of Germany. The Benedictine printing houses seem to churn out a lot of this stuff that was bought and sold in America. So how did Catholics access images of the saints, of, of what to them meant faithful piety and so forth was interesting. So I guess I've got, uh, what, four or five different disciplines there. I don't know if I need more. And I did a tiny bit of ethnography just in terms of trying to interview or locate present day uh, descendants of, of the Riley family. And this was tough because I, I ran ads in newspapers and Catholic papers and he heard very little And finally, some uh, family members shared with me uh, basically piles of holiday cards and holy cards they had, nothing too revelatory there. But then I did have some interesting uh, insights from some of the women who had been wards of the uh, Peekskill convent and had scrapbooks of things pictures of Margaret's, uh, rosaries and so forth and so on. And attested though, they did not know her personally to people who knew her. So that proved to be kind of interesting and what those women felt like as, you know, having been delinquents or just orphans who got put in charge of the good shepherd convent, um, what they went on to do later in life and how they became caretakers of some of these scrapbooks belonging to the elderly sisters.
0: I was interested also, I mean, um, as you said, there's a number of different disciplines that you're drawing on. And I was interested to, I I suppose my own work kind of goes between history and anthropology. And at the beginning of your book, you really um, help the reader see where you found your sources and also the gaps therein, right? The things Mm -hmm. that you weren't able to answer, you put it front and center. Now, this is very normal for anthropologists, but most historians bury that in the footnotes or don't include it at all. Um, what made you choose to to frame the beginning of the book that way to give us that kind of insight?
1: Because when you're dealing with a problem like how on earth does medieval mysticism transfer itself to the United States in the 1920s, you kind of want to, to, to be able to backtrack and say, well, what are the sources I am using? And part of the story I'm telling is the weird way in which these sources became unveiled to me or, un, you know, were not apparent at first glance at all, but you had to do a fair amount of digging – so I think that mysticism is, is sort of the, the shadow side in religious experience. It's hard to find data about it. And because Irish Americans were particularly reticent about their own piety in their spiritual lives, I tried so hard to find diaries of contemporary New Yorkers and so forth and one there There was one perhaps that they would never let me see, uh, but there just weren't those kind of accounts there weren't journals and so forth. so I have the elite sources of sermons and uh you know spiritual directors and published manuals of behavior and so forth but margaret's case just got stranger and stranger, and as I tried to figure out what made this person what they were. I thought I should just inform the readers that um it didn't flow together as a seamless uh document. There were a lot of gaps and so forth so um the diocese of Archdiocese of New York, which you know really should be one of the most accessible uh, and historic diocese in the country, was a very hard place to to work in for a variety of reasons. but they also were unwilling to let me see primary documents. they would show me microfilm. And I would point to gaps in the dates in the microfilm where things have been missed or left out, and they would be slow to try and give you the real thing. So even tracking things down at that level was was hard to do, and it shouldn't be. Catholics should not be alarmed by these sorts of stories, especially in the wake of the abuse scandal since the year 2000, right? Nothing could be worse than that. So you know, I'm dealing with a kind of a small potatoes issue here, but one that interested me and uh, the nuns themselves who had been very generous in letting me use their materials eventually changed archivists and closed the archives to all outsiders. I didn't feel this was a personal mark against me, but just they had felt fearful about exposing something they didn't want exposed. Now, we remember that at this time, um, the Good Shepherd sisters and some other orders in Ireland had been targeted by a film called The Magdalene Sisters about a policy of these kinds of convents taking in young girls, as the Good Shepherds did, and forcing them to work in their own laundry operations and doing laundry for priests, their vestments, holy linens, and so forth, as well as outsiders. So yes, the Good Shepherds were involved in that in Ireland, and they had laundries in New York, um, but I didn't see it as a prison system. The film kind of showed this as a coerced, uh, forced labor. Um, it wasn't that bad in the United States. Uh, I do think that they were their options for these girls were limited, and they were trying to give them a domestic career they could have it was either that or sort of bookkeeping or stenography. I think all those things were were offered. Um, But I think the nuns were very sensitive about that in the early 2000s. And they, when I went to Ireland, for example, I couldn't get in the Cork uh, convent. Um, And I don't know if the order decided they were just sick of outsiders coming in and doing things, but I had no ax to grind. I was simply curious about this person and they, they had begun historical work on her in the 1970s and then just sort of dropped it due to the, you know their own their own labor is pretty uh, pretty uh, divided, and they have a lot of things they're doing that are more important than the history work of writing about their own convent. So when I picked up the thread, people were not really that interested in it, and when I got shut out, that was disappointing because there's probably a lot more in there that I never got to see. And I think the collection has been collated and, and improved now. So I would truly love to be able to add my photocopies to theirs and to you know make a return visit at some point. I hope that will happen.
0: Yeah, it's interesting think, to think about how either just bureaucratic or, or even political um, you know, changes can open or close archives in certain kinds of ways. Um, I think that's something really helpful that you bring to the floor in this book that maybe we don't talk about enough um, in historically minded books or in histories. So what audience did you have in mind as, as you were writing the book? Who did you hope would pick it up?
1: <laughs> well, to my surprise, it became picked up as an audio book. So had I known that early on, I probably would have Try to work more on my punchy prose because chapter Four is a tough one, but um, my audience, I imagine, were scholars of religion, people interested in American history, uh, people interested in mysticism, but also people who like a good good American story. I mean, you know, why is it that we we have endless books about the founding fathers, you know, or you can never go broke writing a book on Lincoln? But figures like Margaret Riley are equally fascinating in our spiritual heritage, and it's not all you know, Protestants, transcendentalists, and liberals of the 20th century. There are these kind of offbeat or marginal uh, figures in Catholic history that, that intersect with so many other dimensions of our history as well um, that I think their stories deserve to, to be told. So I'm glad I had a chance to do that.
0: So a stigmatic is a hard act to
1: follow. What are, what are you working on now? <laughs> Believe it or not, I'm moving on to an even more dangerous topic, which is Catholics and money. <laughs> oh, I was going to say Lincoln. <laughs> <laughs> That's true. I could do a Lincoln book. Yeah, um, Catholics I, and money. Yeah, so I got interested in what happens to these, these Catholics who become assimilated, who become wealthy. And if they don't join the top, in American history. They're maybe in the top 10%. So in my lifetime, I think there's been a kind of um, rebirth of of prosperity among, what are they now, sixth generation, probably away from immigrant status. So how has that changed their outlook on America, their identity as Americans, their identification with the Catholic Church? Um, I would say that you know, is it fair to say that a kind of waspification or a Protestantization has gone on to the extent they've become more secular and are indistinguishable in terms of their uh, symbolic capital? You know, they go to Ivy League schools, they attend the same business schools, etc., um, enter the same legal firms. I'm just curious what a difference that that has made. So, Catholics and money would be a, a simple way to to summarize it. Um, i 've talked just colloquially with friends about calling it bad Catholics um, um, or mean Catholics, so talking about um, you know the number of Catholics in political politically powerful positions who seem to be quite punitive towards. The very world that presumably we all came from—immigrants who are suffering, immigrants who are trying to cross borders, who are desperate to be in the United States, who can't get protection of education or citizenship or rights to attend uh, colleges and universities and so forth—even driver's licenses. So, on the one hand, we see a kind of great divide that happened after World War II, and you know, one that sociologists like Robert with now have described as an increasing divide between conservatives and progressives. And the one hand Catholic conservatives are out there. They have joined a mainstream. If we have one anymore, they have become very successful, very affluent. And on the other hand, we do have a certain counterculture that is reminding Catholics that their, their heritage is to, to follow the life of Christ, to take care of the poor, to watch out for the marginal, to seek a better world. And that can be linked up with American ideals, too, in a very fascinating way. So I've just been intrigued by a lot of the the stalemate in our own Congress in the last years, the difficult kinds of religious cases that have come before our Supreme Court, that I want to tackle these, I think, in, in in a different way. But as you know, for historians, the closer we come to our own time, it's harder for us to uh, to do that work. And I feel a little apprehensive about, you know, verging into journalism or contemporary events that much. So I've got to figure out my time frame a little more carefully here.
0: Well, I can see exactly how those two projects come together for you. I mean, a lot of, a lot of the themes that you've talked about over the course of our discussion today in terms of modernity, in terms of immigration, in terms of... Uh, Catholics finding a place in the United States, being off modern, is, as we were calling it before, all seem to echo into this this new project. It sounds exciting.
1: Um, thank you, and thank you so much for for talking with us. You're welcome. I really enjoyed it.